Open your Bibles to James chapter 1. As we come back to this opening chapter of what is probably the first book written in the New Testament, written from a Jew, in fact, Jesus' half-brother James, written from a Jew to Jews who were spread all throughout the Roman Empire. It had happened after a persecution broke out in Jerusalem and scattered them everywhere, each one of them returning back to their home where they found themselves subjected to hardships and hostilities from family and friends. It came, no doubt, in the form of verbal attacks and broken relationships. It came with economic discrimination, a prejudice, injustice, a whole host of trials that came along with all of those circumstances. And James was sensitive to that. He understood that. He served as you might say, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. This was his former flock. All of them had been there by the thousands in that church until the Lord scattered them everywhere. And so he wants to write this letter to encourage them and to give them some very practical words about how to face these hardships. It comes as a tremendous help to you and I as well as we face our own because the principles that he lays out here are not just for first century people, not just for Jews, not just for those who were maybe a a part of that early church, but for all of us. Because James writes it in such a way, in fact, the opening words, verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Any number, any flavor of trials, multicolored is literally the word. When you fall into all kinds of trials, you are to respond singularly in that way. Now that lays the foundation of the book. And James goes on to explain the tremendous value of trials, allowing them to work their work in you. The sad truth, however, is they don't always work out that way. We all face them. We all have them. Some of you may be in them right now. But sometimes in the midst of the trial, we find ourselves doing anything but growing, walking victoriously, and drawing near to God. In fact, the very sad truth is that sometimes in the middle of a trial, we can find our greatest temptations. We can find sometimes our worst seasons of stumbling. When you find yourself in that place where you are facing some difficulty, some loss, some pain, some loneliness, whatever it might be, your your temptation, or I should say your, your, your tendency sometimes is to be more susceptible to temptation. And rather than being a Uh, an ordeal which ends up growing your endurance and rather than being what God planned it to be, something that you persevere through and find that you have uh, matured through it, rather than all of that, you wind up stumbling greatly. Now when that happens, we still sometimes face, or, or I should say, we refuse to face a difficult truth. We refuse to sort of own up to the reality of what has happened. In fact, uh, many times in the midst of the trial, when you stumble, you also find yourself making excuses. 
You remember Adam and even in the Garden of Eden in that first instance of sin when the Lord comes walking in the garden to meet up with Adam in the cool of the evening and he confronts Adam what has happened. Adam responds, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Of course, when the woman was questioned, her response was no better. She said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. That's um, typical blame shifting. That's very typical when you have fallen, when you faltered, you got into some spot and disappointed others around you, disappointed yourself, and you get confronted. Rather than just owning up square with what you did, you shift the blame. You can hear it maybe in subtle ways with the typical non-apology apology that uh, has become so uh, popular in today's society. Yeah, I messed up, but you messed up too. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sorry that you feel the way you do about what I did. Rather than just saying, would you forgive me for sinning? People, people sort of angle all around this. The real problem is not what I did. The problem is the way you feel about what I did. The real problem here is, is not so much that I stumbled again because of what I am and who I am. The real problem is you or others, or the circumstances. In fact, people take this sometimes so far as to blame God. They may not say it explicitly, God, you're the one who tripped me up, but they will at least think it, or they will uh, maybe propose it in the sense of, this is the way God made me. This is how I am. Yeah, yeah, I'm not perfect, I'm not right, I understand my life is a sort of a a shambles, I understand that, you know, everything is kind of distorted and crazy and messed up, but this is just who I am, God just made me this way. Or if you don't want to sort of go that DNA, genetic makeup route, then you might just blame your circumstances. Well, you know, I have to understand I was born into this, I was born into this situation, I have this kind of upbringing in my background, I'm a victim of this, I'm a victim of that. All of this blame shifting that comes across in modern society and a society of victimization, all of it, all of it aimed at escaping the real truth about your behavior. Sometimes it's even more subtle than that. It comes across as a bargain with God. If, we might say to God, if you do such and such, then I would obey better. God, if I just had a more comfortable home. God, if I just had a better wife. If I just had a better husband. If my kids would stop creating so much havoc, then I, I, then I would be able to follow you. God, if you would just give me more money. If I could just get a raise, a promotion, and then, then at that point, then I, I would be able to obey you. It's really your fault, God. You really just haven't delivered the way that you're supposed to deliver. 
James understands our heart. He understands that when we fall into trial, we're looking for anything other than just squaring up and saying, I sinned. He understands how the human mind and heart works. And so, in the midst of this chapter, when he's talking about the value of trials, he has to add what he says, beginning in verses 12 and 13. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God's promised to those who love him. But let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Now, clearly, James is carrying on this uh, message of trials and testing that he began all the way back at the beginning of the chapter when he started to tell us we need to count a joy when we fall in these trials. We need to understand the value of them. But here he takes it up from a different angle, if you will. He, he looks at it from what you might say is the negative side. What happens when we don't mature? What happens when we fail the test? Why do we fail the test? What's the reason for all of it? And he wants to make sure we understand the reason has nothing to do with God. Sometimes you might think so. Sometimes you might imagine because of your situation, your circumstances, you know, God is conspiring against me. In fact, God might even be, because of maybe all the mistakes I've made in the past, God might even be trying to ruin me. God might be trying to drive me into the ground. He's had it with me, and now all he wants to do is just make me stumble more and more. You might come up with all of that in your mind, but James says when you do that, you're being deceived. That is not what's going on. A failure has a definitive source, and it's not God. It's you. It's you. That's what he says. It's in your heart. Now, the good news is that James explains all of this in the very clearest of terms, which gives us a little opportunity, if you will, to dissect this kind of activity. It gives us a little chance, if you will, to really get underneath where all of this comes from in terms of temptation and sin. And because of that, it gives us incredible clues on how to fight temptation and how to battle with sin. So if you have been in that situation and you have failed the test, how do you deal with it? What do you do? And more importantly, how do you prepare for the next test? Well, James gives us help in all of those categories right here, trying to help us better understand why we fail the test. He gives us five key truths to understand testing and temptation that when we grasp it will make us better equipped, more victorious when we face trials and temptations again. Five key truths to understand trials and temptations. 
The first one, really just a recap of everything that he said already in the first 12 verses, but is this, it is the purpose of trials. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Here he is giving a kind of beatitude, a blessing. Just like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. James uses the very same word here, but he, he declares that you're blessed when you remain steadfast under trial. What he's, you know, which he's already told us. He's already told us to count it joy when we fall in these various trials because we know that it through the testing of our faith, can build endurance, and endurance can stimulate spiritual growth. In fact, every athlete knows that. You only stimulate muscle growth. You only stimulate respiratory expansion when you press yourself into difficult situations, under heavy weights and up you know, steep hills or whatever. Every athlete knows that. James is telling us the same thing is true spiritually. You can't grow spiritually without these things, so count yourself... Uh, Count yourself fortunate, blessed when you fall into them. And when you endure, he says, you will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's God's ultimate design. It's the crown of life, which, of course, refers to that wreath that would be placed on the head of an athlete when they were victorious, sort of symbolizing that they were at the top they were at the head of their, of their, you might say, their field, their competition. They were the victor. It symbolized not only that they were at the top of their sport, but they had proven themselves worthy of that kind of acclaim. James, however, is not talking about a literal wreath. He's talking about a wreath of eternal life, a crown of life which he says God has promised to everyone who loves him, and this is the ultimate reward we receive. James says this is how you are going to be rewarded. He's not suggesting, by the way, that you've got to earn your way into heaven. We know that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So you receive this Eternal life as a free gift, as something that God gives to you. But what he's telling us here, what he's making the point here is that when we receive that eternal life, it is going to be the, the, the reward for all of the difficulties, all of the troubles that we had to go through in the proving out of your faith. You understand what a test is, right? A test is to demonstrate whether or not you know or don't know something, whether or not you are or are not genuine, whether or not you're true or not. That's what a test is. So you're going through these tests, you're going through these trials, and the question that is at the forefront of all of them is, are you going to persevere? Not not whether or not you're going to be perfect. Not whether or not you'll stumble. But will you persevere through the trial? You do that. And you will be proven to be true. 
Now, James is actually going to unfold this in a much deeper way for us in chapter 2 because he's going to talk about the fact that faith without works is dead. But here he's kind of hinting at it already. That you endure the trial, you prove the genuineness of your faith, and you're going to receive as a consequence of that the eternal life that God has granted, that God has gifted to everyone who truly loves Him. You're going to, you're going to stand with proven faith. And consequently, you're going to get the reward that everyone with proven faith receives. So that's sort of the purpose of these trials. That's what they're doing because we all know there's all kinds of people who are untested, unproven, and false in their faith. But James says God is proving out for your sake, but more so even for His own glory's sake, the genuineness of your faith. That just sort of summarizes everything he said so far, but it leads us then to a second key truth about trial and temptation that we need to understand, and that is the purity of God. The purity of God. Having restated the purpose and the design of these trials, he now pictures the person who's in the midst of the trial and says, let no one say when they're tempted, they say, I am being tempted by God. James uses certain tenses in the original language that bring out sort of the vividness of this. He's picturing the person who is in the middle of the squeeze of the trial. They're feeling the full tug and pull of the temptation and they are on the very edge of yielding. And in the midst of that, as their defenses begin to fall, they tell themselves, I am being tempted by God. As we said earlier, that's the natural human tendency. As a natural human part of us, we want to blame someone else for our failures. And so people, one way or another, blame God. God didn't do enough for me. God put me in this situation. It's impossible. God wasn't there for me. He didn't show himself to me. I prayed. He didn't answer me immediately. He didn't answer me the way I wanted him to answer me. And so ultimately, it's God's fault. He's the one. He's tempted me. Well, regardless of how you may think of it, James makes it very clear. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Two parts to that statement. The first part explains the second one. The first one says God cannot be tempted with evil. It's an impossibility because the purity of his character, his holiness, makes it impossible for him to in any way be attracted to evil. Or another way to say this is evil and wickedness and sin have absolutely no appeal to God. Zero. He's not fascinated by it. He's not drawn to it. He finds no sense of pleasure in it. He, he isn't attracted to it at all. It utterly repulses him in every way. Psalm 5.4, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil shall not dwell with you. Or so many of us memorize in Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look at evil, and you cannot dwell with iniquity. This is who God is. He's just, he's so far beyond 
even, even entertaining evil. He wouldn't go near it. He can't dwell with it. He doesn't even consider sin. It has absolutely nothing to offer him. There's no way it could ever infiltrate his character because it completely repulses him. And because of all of that, it utterly rules out the fact that God would ever even conceive of using it as an instrument. It's impossible for him to contemplate using sin or tempting someone because the idea of ever generating a single act of sin is so repugnant to God. He is not indifferent. He isn't sort of standoffish about the whole thing. He hates it in every form, in every instance, and he would have no part whatsoever in contributing to anyone being tempted or committing a sin. God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Now, you might have thought differently about God. You may have thought that God sends temptations your way. Maybe, maybe to see if you could overcome it, maybe God sends temptations your way. Maybe he dangles them in front of you to find out whether you really love him. Maybe he kind of plays that game the way you might play that game with other people. But James says that's not how God operates. He doesn't trick you. And he's not out to trick you and he never would. Now you may remember that it was the Holy Spirit who led Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days in order to be tested or as the text says in order to be tempted but it says very clearly in both Luke and in Matthew he's led out in the wilderness for 40 days in order to be tempted by the devil temptations came from the devil God sent him into the wilderness with the purpose of building up his spiritual endurance God sent him into the wilderness with the purpose of improving his faithfulness God sent him in the wilderness and with the purpose of him glorifying God but when he was in the wilderness individual solicitations to evil came each one of them from the devil and that gives us tremendous insight into the way these trials and temptations work the scripture certainly is clear God does design trials he does send hardships they do come from him you remember Genesis fifty twenty. Joseph looks back on the trials of his life and when he's speaking to his brothers who were the catalyst for selling him into slavery in Egypt and all the hardships that came into his life, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He understood that God was sovereign in the trial. He understood that, that these things weren't outside of the realm of God's providence and, and they didn't just sort of happen or surprise God. He didn't have such a low and, and uh, unfaithful view of God. God sends trials. He designs them. Several times He declares that He sent Israel into the wilderness to face various hardships. They were from Him. He says in Isaiah that he, he designs calamity. That is who He is. 
But in the midst of those trials and those outward hardships, you should never let yourself think that his purpose in them is temptation. Never, ever is that his purpose. He doesn't tempt you. He doesn't want you to be tempted. He doesn't want you to sin. He doesn't want you to be solicited to evil. He never suggests that you respond in evil ways. He doesn't design trials in order to make you fall. He is not the source of temptation. Well, if he's not the source of temptation, where do they come from? Well, that leads to James' third key truth for trial and temptation that you and I need to understand. And that is the power of our desires. The power of our desires. James 1.14, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. The source of blame is not outside of you. It isn't God. It isn't even Satan. It isn't the demons. It isn't your spouse. It isn't your children. It isn't your anything in your environment. It isn't any of that. It is something that exists within you. It ultimately begins with your desires. Not something outside of you, something inside of you. And he pictures these desires within you baiting and luring or luring and enticing. These are hunting and fishing words in the Greek language. The first one was used to describe the kind of decoy or enticement that people would set for a trap in hunting something that would have visual or sometimes olfactory kind of appeal to, to draw you in from far away, to compel you to come so that you would eventually be ensnared. The second one speaks of the actual ensnarement or the entrapment. It was a... It was a... Uh, it was used in fishing when they would throw their net over the fish and catch them in that trap. And it pictures the, the fear, the pain, the trauma of being trapped, or in modern terms we might say hooked. As you bite down on what appeared to be some juicy, delicious worm only to find something piercing your jaw and now dragging you along where you never intended to go. Panic and pain and distress that follows. James picturing all that. This is the operation of temptation. And those things come, he says, ultimately they're generated by desires within you. The bait and the hook might come from Satan. They might be something that comes from the world. But the inner impulse that responds to that stuff is in your heart. You know what? You can throw, you can throw in front of me a hook and a worm all day long. I am not going to bite it, I can promise you. Because worms are just not attractive to me. 
I have no desire to eat worms, at least at this age of my life. That has no appeal. And so the hook and the bait are not really the source of the temptation. The source of the temptation are the desires. It's what you have inside of you. That's where it comes from. And this is exactly what Jesus taught. One of the most insightful things that you will ever learn about sanctification and about growth in Christ is exactly what Jesus taught. You remember when some Pharisees were criticizing his disciples over not not eating in the proper way, not washing their hands ceremonially. And he said, he said to them, you are without understanding. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? It enters his He says it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. But what comes out of a person, he says, that is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within And they defile a person. That's where it all begins. It comes from within. It all begins inside of you. Now there's some tremendous insight here in terms of the battle of temptation and having victory in the midst of trial because if you want to remain undefiled, the primary thing you have to deal with is what is on the inside. If you want to have victory in trial, the primary place you have to look is what you see on the inside. If you find yourself not growing, if you find yourself not progressing, if you find yourself not being drawn closer to God, the primary thing, the primary place you have to look is inside of you. It isn't your circumstances. It isn't your spouse. Although we recognize that God can use a godly spouse in many ways to spur us and to help us. It isn't your environment. It isn't your work. Not even your church. Those aren't the sources of your problems. The sources of your problems, or I should say the source of your problems, is you. You know, James is going to come back and tell us this again. He's really good about this, by the way. James is very good about repeating things for us. But he's going to come back and tell us this again in chapter 4, verse 1. Where are the source of quarrels and fights among you? Is it not the desires that wage war in your members? Isn't that it, really? You got a fight, you got a squabble, you got a disagreement, you got a disappointment with somebody. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from them. It comes from you. It comes from inside. Tremendous insight. Because if you want to change the outcome of the trial and the temptation, you begin with you on the inside. Now you can only do that by the power of God and with His power you can begin to realign your desires. 
Begin to retrain your desires so that they're drawn to what is good. They're drawn to what is right. This is what Paul tells us, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, if you continually allow yourself to be conformed, to be molded, to be shaped by the world around you, it will feed and foster and grow and cultivate all kinds of bad desires. It's going to create those desires within you. It's going to affect your mind in those ways. And so Paul says what you have to do is you have to continually renew your mind. You have to continually renew it, and that will transform it. And you set your mind, as he says in another place, on things above, not on things of the earth. Or he says in yet another place, you have to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, saturating your mind with Christ and the things of Christ so that it's being renewed. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, another incredible passage describing this whole uh, sort of... uh, a process, 2 Corinthians 10, and you can see it's all built off of the same fundamental truths. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And we destroy arguments And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. He's telling you, you are in the middle, whether you realize it or not, you're in the middle of a spiritual war. You say, well, I thought spiritual warfare, I thought that was a bunch of demons and angels. No, 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 no. Spiritual warfare is in your mind. Everything you hear, everything you see that goes into your mind and raises itself against God and against His Word and against His holiness, you, Paul says, you've got to take those things captive to obedience to Christ. Every argument, every opinion. You want to win this war, you're going to have to do what Paul describes here. You're going to have to take your thoughts captive. You're going to have to attack, assault, confront, bombard, beat down every thought. You cannot be passive. You cannot just sort of go blithely through life, just just carried along by every stream that you fall into and just brought down with, with whatever is filling your heart and mind, whatever you're placing in front of it, you have got to go on the attack. You have got to assault them and make them captive to Christ. He's not talking about assaulting other people. He's not even talking about arguing with other people. He's talking about your thoughts. Because that is where the source of temptation begins. Now back over in James, James tells us 
He goes on to tell us what happens when you don't do that. Verse 15. He says you have these desires within you. And when the desire, he says, has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So he gives a, you might say, a kind of genealogy or maybe a a lineage or a heritage of the destructive forces of sin. And it begins, he says, with this conception. He gives the image, he moves from hunting and fishing now to to childbirth. And and he speaks in terms of conception and giving birth and growing up. And all of this is where he says how sin happens in your life. The sin is not technically the desire. In fact, a lot of sin actually is a perfectly good desire that gets corrupted. A desire for hunger which becomes gluttony. A desire for work to provide for yourself becomes greed. A desire for clothing becomes vanity. A desire for sex becomes immorality. A desire for accomplishment becomes vain ambition. And each of those desires, they become corrupted. They become distorted. And you begin to seek fulfillment for those desires outside of God's design for you and for the world. But once the mind accepts that distorted pathway, that corrupted pathway, it's like an egg has been implanted in the womb of your mind. And it begins to grow. You leave it there. And it grows, and eventually, like any baby in a womb, it wants to get out. And James says when it does that, when it finds that expression, it's sin. It's conceived, and it gives birth, and you act on it, and it's sin. And then, once it's born, it begins to grow and grow, and grow. And when it's fully grown, its purpose is to kill. It's a murderer. I can't imagine the pain of a parent who has to realize that the child they gave birth to has turned out to take the life of someone else. How much more horrific when the child they gave birth to turns and wants to destroy them. This is what he says happens. You have this thing, this desire that you conceive in your mind and you begin to think, wow, that would be be nice. That would be enjoyable. And you plant it in the womb of your mind and it grows and it grows and then the opportunity comes and you give birth to this sin and now you're on the hook and you're drug and you're drug and you're drug along along the way while this thing grows and grows and grows and then one day you wake up and it is standing over you with the knife. It's death. Ultimately, eternal death is what sin wants to produce, but it'll take death in any form that it can. 
killing your family, killing your career, killing your worship, killing your health, killing whatever it can. The wages of sin is death, Paul says. So you have to understand all of this. You have to. You have to understand the true source of all this. It is the desires within you. Those desires get born and begin to grow and take hold of your life and eventually create death. Now here's the important, important part of all this. If you want to overcome these temptations, if you want to overcome these trials, if you want to really win them, you don't do it when the full-grown murderer is standing over you with his instrument of death. If you want to have victory in the temptations, you abort it. You never let it get born. Attack it at its source. Deal with it at the level of desires. And to do that, you're going to have to dedicate yourself. You're going to have to invest in this process of renewing your desires, of laying aside the old self which is corrupted according to deceitful lust and put on the new self who's created in the likeness of God. You're going to have to spend time working on those desires. You're going to have to spend time renewing your mind, filling your mind with the thoughts of God, deepening your understanding about Him, of His will, of what delights He has, of what desires He has, of what He finds joyous and valuable and something to treasure. You're going to have to spend your time with those kinds of desires. Exactly what we read in Psalm 73 this morning. Whom have I in heaven but you, and on earth what do I desire besides you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, God, are the portion of my life. That's where you need to get. You say, yeah, but I, but I so enjoy this, I so enjoy that, it's just so fun. Just, I want to just relax and and kind of go with the flow. I don't want to be stiff and, and stuffy. I, you know, all that stuff about Christianity, it just doesn't appeal to me. Well, then prepare yourself for the hook. I mean, if that is about all you want to invest in your sanctification, then prepare yourself to give birth to something that is out to kill you. And when it happens, don't point your finger. Don't say it was God. He made me this way. Don't point your finger and say, well, it was circumstances. No, it was you. You didn't deal with a desire in your heart. And the battle was lost before it was ever fought. James returns this main theme to remind you a fourth key truth about these trials and temptations that you need to understand. And that is the persistence of God's goodness. The persistence of God's goodness. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow 
due to change. Again, don't be deceived. Don't, don't be tempted into saying God did this. Don't be deceived into thinking wrongly. That's not how you should think of God, the one who's tempting you and trying to get you to stumble and, and he's out to conspire against you. This is how you need to consistently think of God. He's the source of unending good. He is the source of unending good. Every good and every perfect gift comes down from above. He doesn't give bad gifts. He doesn't give negative gifts. Every good, every perfect gift. This is as comprehensive as you could think of. Not only is God not the source of your temptations, every source of every one of your blessings has come from Him. I mean, did you have anything good this morning? Did you have anything that was good? Did you have running water when you woke up? Did you have the comforts of a home? Did you have a meal? Were you able to clothe yourselves? Did you have a comfortable place of shelter? God provided all of that, and He preserved all of that for you. And so far beyond that, He showers you with gifts. In fact, when you fail the test and when you falter in the trial, it doesn't change what He does. He has no change. He is not like a shadow on a sundial that moves as the earth rotates and time passes. He's not like that. He doesn't have a shadow of variation. In fact, James calls him the father of lights, meaning he's the one who's not under the sun and subject to all of its seasons. He's actually the one who created the sun and the moon and the stars. He's the father of the lights. So he doesn't really even have a shadow. There's absolutely, not only does he change, he doesn't even have a shadow that can change. That's how immutable he is. That's That's how persistent is going to be his, his workings. And James says a part of this persistence is that he gives good gifts. Good gifts. Everything that's good comes from him. Now, even when God sends a trial your way, it's good. Even when what seems to be bad gifts, even when it's wrapped in thorns, it's a good gift. This is the mindset of Joseph. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's the mindset of every godly saint throughout all the ages. James says you can't be deceived into thinking otherwise. Say, well, but God just, he wants to take away things from me. God wants to take away what's pleasurable and what's joyous. God's just a cosmic killjoy, right? No, you're deceived. He doesn't give anything but good gifts. He says, you follow this pathway. You walk according to this law. You're going to be blessed. You, you submit yourself to God And he'll lift you up in due time. Because he doesn't give anything but good gifts. 
You might think that he is out to get you. You might think that he's all about killing your joy. He's all about taking things away from you. But you are not thinking rightly about God. Every good thing you could conceive of in your life has come from him. And he's going to keep doing it. He doesn't change. He's always working for your good. You say, well, I've changed. Maybe God really didn't know when we got this whole thing started, you know, about me and how weak I am and how frail I am. Or maybe I didn't really know God. I thought God loved me. I thought He saved me. I thought He intended good for me. But now, I mean, after all my failures, maybe now God perhaps has turned against me. And now He's conspiring to get me. Well, that brings James to this fifth key truth about trial and temptation that you need to understand. Verse 18. Of His own will, He has brought you forth by the word of truth. You need to hear that. Of His own will, He has brought you forth by the word of truth so that you can kind of be a, first, be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. God's goodness began not with a choice you made, but with a choice He made. God's goodness began not in your will, but in His will. You see, it was of His will that He purposed all this for you to begin with. Of His own will, it is that which is the source of where all this goodness comes from. It isn't dependent on whether you falter or fail or whether you go on gloriously. None of that really matters. We love, John says, because He first loved us. Do you have a love for God? Do you think uh, kindly of God? Do you know where that came from? It came because God first loved you. It was His will that caused you and brought you forth. James still using the language of birth here. And now it's not sin that is conceived in your mind and gives birth to... It's not a desire conceived in your mind that gives birth to sin. But it's you and your salvation which was conceived in the mind of God and then was born when He called you. Of, your, of His own will, He has given birth or brought us forth. By the way, how did He do it? He did it by the Word of truth. The Word of truth, the Word of God, the Scripture. Paul tells Timothy, it is the Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, it is the Scripture which is able to make one wise unto salvation. That's why, a few verses later, he tells Timothy, therefore, preach the word in season and out of season. Even though people will want something else, even though they'll have itching ears that want to hear something else, still preach it. Because what they want and what they prefer is immaterial. 
Because it's only the Scripture which has the power to save. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of truth. Present yourself a workman, doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing. What? The word of truth. 1 Peter 1, you've been born again, not from perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And all flesh is as grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So, God has caused you to be born again. He sent someone to share the word of God and through the instrument of the word of God, he caused you to be born. So that, as he says, second half of the verse, you can be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, he might have been talking to these Jews saying that you were the first ones before the Gentiles, really before anyone else. You were the ones who were in Jerusalem and you first heard the word. And so you represented what was to come. But I actually think this is talking to them about the future resurrection. That, 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 that what God is doing in their life might be meager at this point, but it's giving tiny evidences, kind of like the first fruits that Jews would bring in the harvest season. They would just bring a tiny little portion of their crops, but it evidenced something much more grand. And so God redeemed you, and He's working within you, and He's helping you and empowering you to have victory in some of these trials. And that is giving you a little bit of the foretaste of what is to come, a kind of first fruits of what He wants to make you, the creatures that He has called us to be in our redeemed flesh. What a tremendous encouragement to know that while these things run deep in our heart, that God's given us every resource we need for life and godliness. We can attack those desires. And by His power, the one who gives you every good gift, we can have victory. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. But as you're standing, if you're here this morning... And you hear all this and you've never thought about any of this before because you are just now realizing the destructive, murderous effects of sin in your life. It has caused you to fall under the condemnation of God and you face not only the destruction in this life, but you face eternal death because of sin. Scripture says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, His good and His perfect gift begins with the salvation that He provided through His Son. You confess yourself a sinner. You call out for Him for life and salvation. He gives it and you can be saved. If you'd like to know more about that, we do have a visitor reception immediately after the service down the hall to the right. We'd love to be able to meet with you, talk to you hear how God is working in your life and share with you more about this story of salvation. Father, we're grateful for this today. So thankful we need your work. We need your power to transform our minds, to attack the desires 
We confess right now, Lord, how grieved we are to know what still remains in our hearts, how we've given into it far too often. But Lord, let us not be naive. This is not your plan or your design for us. You send us into hardship not to trip us up, but to give us opportunity to prove our love for you. We want to do that. Would you help us to lay aside those deceitful desires and be renewed in our mind and put on Christ? We ask in Christ's name, amen.